I think the most boring people in the world are the people that don't challenge themselves, you know, which I don't know too many of those people because I like to surround myself with folks that, that do want to be challenged. Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast presented by Exo Mountain Gear. In this episode, we're speaking with Stephen Arada, a former Green Beret, about his hunting experience, military experience, and how he recovered after medical retirement, including a great challenge that he did this past year in 2020, where he hiked the year, meaning he did 2,020 miles of hiking in the year 2020. That comes out to five and a half miles a day. For 365 days. Super impressive stuff. We'll hear about that challenge as well as some of the lessons that Stephen has learned as a Green Beret, how he applies that to backcountry hunting, and much more. So thank you guys for tuning in. If you enjoy the show, it would help us tremendously if you can share it with a friend or leave us a review in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you're listening to this. If you're new to the podcast, you can learn more at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. And be sure to hit that subscribe button so that you automatically receive future episodes. If you guys have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, just send us a quick email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. All right, let's get right into this conversation with my buddy, Steven. Cool, Steven, to kick things off, man, uh, we'll get to an intro here first, but I was looking at where you're from, where you've spent time, and I have a question. First things mm-hmm. first, because we've we've internet argued about this. I want to know how you became a Bruins fan. Okay, so that all started when I was a kid, um, and I'm glad you brought this up. So did you <laughs> I, did you get Steve up to uh, speed? No, uh, I mean our little back and forth. Here. We have we've just been bantering <laughs> since the 2019 NHL playoffs when my St. Louis Blues beat your Bruins. Uh, well, you know, I just I guess, don't know why I you're claiming the Bruins. That's what I want to know. If if you pay the refs off enough, you know, and they, oh, they don't right. make a call, yeah, you know, I had to just slide that in. So, uh-huh. um, so how it happened was obviously growing up in Minnesota, like the hockey culture, and I was a huge North Stars fan. Well, when they packed up in the middle of the night and moved down to Dallas, I was like, okay, yeah, no more. Even as a young kid, it's like, yeah, I'm no longer a North Stars fan. So my dad, what growing up, you know, him being a little bit older, that was back in the original six days. And he was a Bruins fan. And he, uh, so he liked Bobby Orr and Esposito and all those old, old timers. Yeah. And so they were always kind of like my second team. So when, uh, when the North stars moved, then I became a a Bruins fan and we didn't get the wild until I was in the military. So it was kind of, yeah, you know, I like to see them do well, but it's you know kind of hard to, and I don't want to (laughs) be that guy that moves camps all the time just because one team's winning and another isn't. Yeah. All right. Well, I can I can respect the history now, so I won't give you as much yeah. trouble. But well, I I appreciate that. I appreciate <laughs> that. 
Well, uh, to back up, man, just to introduce yourself a bit, obviously we'll talk about your story and kind of what you've been up to here in the last handful of years, but just uh, anything you want to share to introduce yourself to listeners and give context, man. Yeah. So um, did uh, just short of 26 years in the military, started out in uh, Marine Corps Reserve. I was in a uh, reconnaissance unit out of Texas. Um, about the same time I met my wife and we got engaged, I wanted to go active duty and I had met a special forces Green Beret guy and he had told me about what they do. And, and I was like, oh, that sounds pretty awesome. So um, I went and saw my recruiter back then. You couldn't go uh, even as a prior service guy, I couldn't go straight to selection and the Q course. So uh, I went up to Fort Lewis. We were there for a little bit over a year. Uh, during that time I went to selection, got, got selected and um, went to the Special Forces Qualification course, graduated that, and went to 5th Special Forces Group in the late 90s. And um, I was there for six years. Um, was one of, the, one of the first guys kind of to get into Afghanistan. Um, and then, uh, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, we ended up going back to Fort Bragg in 2006 and I ended up retiring out of there in December of 2017 um, when uh, out of third special force group um, our plan was always to move back to Wyoming uh, we just love the lifestyle out here and so uh, we waited until the summer um, my youngest son we wanted to make sure you know we didn't want to move in the middle of the school year so we came out and uh, just loving life out here. Um, spent a lot of time out hiking, hunting, just time in the back country as much as possible. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's, so cool, that's kind of what got us here. Yeah. So. Is there, um, on the, when you're going through that, you talked about the selection process, is there, um, you know, traits they're looking for in guys, obviously, like what, what are those traits that they're trying to identify just to even get you into the kind of testing for the programs? Yeah. So that's very, very in-depth and very um, polished, very professional. Um, obviously they've been doing it for quite a while. You know, I mean, I went, I went to selection in 1996 and even back then, um, you know, you, you do, obviously there's the physical portion, um, but there's a lot of psychological uh, evaluations that they do with you and th the psychs that work there. It's, it's pretty amazing. They have a very good uh, percentage of saying, okay, this guy's going to pass or this guy isn't, this is what we're looking for. Um, Cause there's guys that go out there and, and they crush it physically. Right. But they look at, at their psychological profile and they're like yeah this 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 guy isn't a good fit and they're usually right <laughs> is that assessment is that like verbal written is it observation like that whole psych component and how kind of accurate they are as you mentioned of them kind of predicting success what does that come from it i think from you know obviously i'm i a knuckle dragger you know i pick heavy things up put them down um but they uh you know the when you're in a community like that, whether it's 
civilians or um, military personnel, they're always the top rung. You know, and if we, when we talk about four three, hopefully later, you know, I can talk about those guys. But um, you know, it's, it's their schooling, and then these test batteries that they have you do. You do a lot of. I think we take like. I don't know, four or five psychological exams are all written ones, you know, fill in the bubble or finish a sentence. Um, you know, things like my father was, and then you fill in the blank, mm. um, different things like that. And I think they just see trends and they track those trends. And um, yeah, so there's, there's that psychological part. And then obviously the physical part, because it's, it's quite demanding. Yeah. But that whole psychological assessment um, that's being made on an individual is part of that is written, as you mentioned, like just even from testing and things like that. Yeah, they will. And if they if they see something that they consider a flag, they'll bring guys in and they'll say, hey, we saw that you put this. Why? Why is that? And then they'll give they'll give the uh, the candidate a, a chance to explain themselves in deeper detail. So, yeah, I was, I was kind of curious on that if they could, you know, if there was trends, if they kind of knew, like you alluded to, that they knew in advance, like, yeah, this guy's going to make it or not, or, or really it's just kind of doing their best educated guess. And it's still like a, you know, 80% fail rate when they, when they get into the actual testing. Cause they, um, yeah. And they, they try to weed guys out prior to even getting there. Um, yeah. Even back to the old, uh, the old green beret, um, the ballad of the green beret song where they say 100 men will test today, but only three will earn the green beret. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that when they track is, is guys just even back then, because what you have to do, at least back in my days, you had to go in. Um, most of the big bases had a, a special forces recruiter on base and you would go and see them and you would take an IQ test and just one of those psychological evaluations and then you do a physical fitness test and then they would send that in if it looked good then they would give you an invite and orders to go down down to fort bright to go through selection Hmm. so and you know that saves everybody a lot of money and time too right right so I'm sure we'll hit more on, uh, you know, your military experience and even how that intersects with hunting and, uh, you know, natural questions I have have to do with your life uh, in the military and how that's informed your hunting sense. But one thing that I found interesting is we were chatting before the podcast and swapping notes, as you said, kind of also the flip side of that is you said hunting had a large part in you being successful in the military. Um, so I was curious about that. Like what from your hunting experience prior to your service, prior to selection, prior to special forces, how did hunting become part of your success in that military career? Um, quick answer on that one is mental toughness without a doubt. Um, you know, my dad, uh, you know, my, my parents and, and my, my grandfather, great influencers on me, you know, just incredible people. And my dad's, even though he's, uh, you know, he grew up in a loving, nurturing family, he was also a little old school, you know, you know, he's like toughen up buttercup. And, 
we were, uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier. I think I was like 13 or 14 and uh, we were out duck hunting and we got in one of those early November storms. So there was ice on the slough and this is a big slough. I mean, a lot of people would probably call it a lake, but um, you know, my dad and I, out, we got, we had the slough to ourselves um, and we were trying to jump ducks, jump shoot them. So he's like, well, you're lighter you and the dog get out on the ice and then <laughs> right along the, <laughs> the reeds. Right. So obviously about halfway through, I go through the ice. And so not a big deal, but when I was trying to crawl out, that's when all the, all the cold water went down into my, uh, into my waders. And so my dad being the practical guy he is, he's like, well, we're halfway around. So let's just finish the hunt and then we'll get back to the truck. You know, there wasn't <laughs> any, there was no, Hey, let's, let's make a beeline back to the truck and get you warmed up. You know, he's just, so, you know, he grabbed, grabbed my feet and kind of tilted me up so the water could drain out. And, uh, we kept hunting, you know, and then, uh, he and I kind of laughed about it. So fast forward a bunch of years <clears throat> and I'm at, uh, Fort Bragg going through the qualification course and, and one of the first phases you do there is you do what's called small unit tactics. So, uh, because to get into special forces, you can have any, uh, what they call an MOS or any job in the army and be able to go to selection. So, you know, you, you could be a trumpet player in the band and try out for special forces. So they have to kind of build that, that building block of getting guys your, your basic infantry skills. Cause that's, that's basically what the green beret is. He's just a really good infantryman when you break it down. And uh, so it's summertime, Fort Bragg. We're doing this patrol. I'm kind of in the middle of everything and uh, where we do our training, it's like a jungle out there and we're like held up. And I'm like, what are we doing? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? So I worked my way up front and I'm like, what are you guys doing? What's, what's up? And they're like, we're trying to find a place to cross the Creek. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's 90 degrees at Fort Bragg. <laughs> Nobody wants to get wet. So I just like plow right through and they're like, Oh, okay. So everybody else comes through, you know? So, you know, little things like that. It's, um, you know, that the old saying about train hard, fight easy. Um, kind of the same. That's the way I look at, at hunting too, is train hard, make yourself very uncomfortable. And, uh, you get dividends. You, know, you guys do the same thing. That's cool. Yeah, you, just you thinking of, uh, you know, or speaking of your father and family and hunting, and that's part of your culture growing up. Uh, another thing I wanted to hear about is you mentioned your grandfather, Bo hunted up until uh, his death at age 96. Yes. And you said what a huge motivator that was for you, which is uh, obvious to see why that was a huge motivator. That's impressive. <laughs> but, man, I just I love hearing about, like, old timers and guys still getting after it in their old age. So, like, any stories, you know, kind of specific takeaways from just observing him and watching him hunt up until that age? Yeah. He, um, you know, one thing, another, you know, besides being an outdoorsman, learning stuff from my dad and my grandfather is, um, you know, as a kid at the time, I didn't realize it, but what the, the conservationists that they were, you know, um, you know, my dad taking me to ducks unlimited banquets and stuff as a kid, I didn't understand what was going on. 
I just thought it was my dad and all his buddies getting together, you know, eating prime rib, swapping stories, things like that. Um, but my, you know, my grandfather too was, was, he cared about the land. He cared about the animals and, uh, you know, just that whole, whole hunting culture, you know, we were talking about. So he, uh, I remember one time my, my grandfather started a, uh, he had a welding business and a, a big part of what they did there was fix. Uh, I'm from a small rural community where they, uh, a lot of agriculture. So fixing farm machinery and stuff like that. And my dad took it over, but uh, that's where it ended. I wasn't going to do that. Uh, but um, I remember my grandfather was fixing something one time for a guy and, and we're, you know, I was kind of hanging around and they were all talking and when the guy left my grandfather, I said to my grandpa, it's like, oh, he seems like a really nice guy. My grandpa looks at me and goes, yeah, he's okay, but he's not a hunter. I mean, that's. <laughs> <laughs> he's nice know, at all, but. That is, that's the culture that, you know, and, and just, um, you know, wanting to, to be out there in the outdoors and, and, you know, putting meat in the freezer and everything. So. Yeah. And it was pretty, it was pretty cool too. Cause he had, uh, he gave me his, uh, old deer rifle. And when he got that rifle, it was during, um, I think it was during world war two. And so you, it was one of those times where you, you kind of, you, you grabbed what you could get and, mm. um, it would not be my first choice for a hunting rifle. It was a Remington 1907 and it, most of it's, uh claim to fame is that's what uh the it was a it was a long gun for the fbi for a while and then it was used when they took down bonnie and clyde and it's it's like this straight wall cartridge in 351 we used to joke that my grandfather could shoot deer on the other side of the hill because of the ballistic arch of that thing <laughs> <laughs> up and over the top yeah, go over the top you know he just had an idea but um, he gave me that. And unfortunately, one of the downsides to my career is, is uh, the Special Forces Regiment decided it was more important for me to deploy than it was to be home for hunting season. So I missed a bunch of seasons. And, um, but I was able to get home, I think it was like 2004, 2005, something like that. After, it was shortly after he had given me that rifle. And uh, we were all in deer camp. And it was one of the last years that he was able to go up there too. And, um, I was able to, to get a doe and just the look on his face when, when we, you know, brought it back up to the cabin and, and, mm. you know, cleaning it, cutting it, you know, just wrapping it all. And it was, you know, cause here's a guy that had given me so much and then just, uh, us to be able to celebrate over something like that was, was pretty great. Yeah. That is awesome, man. Very cool. Speaking you, of rifles. You would have loved him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure I would have loved to. Love to hang out. Speaking of rifles, you were uh, a sniper instructor as part of your time for your service. But before we get into that, you said that that was the, the second best job you had in the military. So what was your best or your favorite job in the military? My favorite job was I was um, when I was an assault cell leader. So, um, basically how we were broken down is we had, uh, our teams are broken down into four, six man sections. And then you, you have a guy that's in charge of each one of those. And then, uh, 
So I was uh, my cell leader on a breaching cell. So we were the main, the main effort whenever uh, we needed to, especially if we needed to breach something large, like to get into, into a compound or something like that. So yeah, that was the life of high adventure. That was a <laughs> lot of fun. And, yeah. uh, and you know, it's the, the guys that I was working with were, you know, just incredible guys. Um, and I had gotten a lot of, cause it's not a job that you just step into, you know, you got to work your way up. And, uh, the mentorship I had, uh, received, you know, prior to that, um, really just, uh, made me a much better green beret because I saw what, what right looked like, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, and, and it was funny cause my, uh, my team started, my troops started major Tony. Um, I thanked him one time. I was like, Hey buddy, thanks for everything you've taught me, you know, keeping me alive all these years and everything else. And he said, the best way to pay me back is do for other guys what I did for you. So, you know, I, that carried me my whole career. And I was, you know, so when I was a, when I was an instructor, you know, I really tried to foster that mentorship and try to give those guys everything I could mm. every little bit of nugget. So, yeah. Yeah. What was it about being that assault team leader that was your favorite? What is was it the actual work of what you guys were doing, or was it the fact of kind of being a part of that small element together on that mission, what have you? Or I guess maybe a combination of both. Yeah, big combination of both. And um, you know, I don't wanna uh I mean going in and and uh you know, taking you know, it's like everybody, if we were coming to your house, it's because you were a bad person. And so to go in there and solve that problem, um, was, was satisfying most of the time, you know, and, and feeling that you were trying to do something good for, for everyone. So, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's just fast paced running gun. I mean, and very competitive. I mean, very, very competitive and you, you better be on top of your game, um, with the team, you know, you, everybody always wants to be the best shot. Everybody wants to be the fastest and the most accurate. Um, everybody wants to be in the best shape, uh, you know, and, um, so that, that was part of it. And we were like a special part of our unit. So nobody else was really kind of doing it, what we were doing or qualified to be doing what we were doing. So it was kind of an elite inside of an elite. And if you weren't, if you didn't meet the standards, then, uh, you know, you're, you'd come into work and all your kit was in the hallway and you had to go find a new job. So <laughs> yeah. it's kind of how Steve runs XO, you know, I, I get that feeling, you know, it's like everybody I talk to from XO or S and S are like, Oh yeah, man, the boss. <laughs> Cracking the whip, man. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so being, uh, being a sniper instructor and I know you have a ton of experience on shooting long range, all that type of stuff, which obviously can translate to hunting and, I know you have connections. You actually put me in contact with Jaden over at Hornady and we're going to be talking on the podcast soon and stuff like that. But these days I also see you, uh, bow hunting, if not more than anything, or maybe exclusively, I don't even know, but do you still, did you spend so much time shooting 
as a sniper and sniper instructor that in the hunting context it doesn't interest you anymore or were you at with that no i mean i i mean any kind of hunting i absolutely love um you know i guess the big thing with with bow hunting is just the intimacy you get with the animal you know getting in close um you know, again, you guys are the same way. And I'm sure it's part of the reason that bow hunting is so attractive to you is just the, the challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think the most boring people in the world are the people that don't challenge themselves, you know, which I don't know too many of those people because I like to surround myself with folks that, that do want to be challenged. And, uh, and nothing against rifle hunting. I, mean, I absolutely love rifle hunting. But, uh, you know, especially with, um, like this year with pronghorn, I mean, just trying to spot and stalk an antelope, you know, it's like my, my buddy Josh and I say it's failure can't be any more fun than, than a failed stalk on a pronghorn. (laughs) So, um, but no, I absolutely, I mean, I love, you know, I've, Every year I've been doing rifle, rifle hunts, uh, in Idaho. Um, and you know, the great thing about Wyoming is you're buying, you guys know, um, you buy a rifle tag and then you get your archery stamp. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, your tag can actually be, you know, good for two months almost. So, um, but yeah, and, and you know, it's the challenge of shooting a bow the challenge of getting close to that animal it all just is very appealing to me yeah but uh yeah I, don't worry mark i still love geeking out <laughs> on on rifles and ballistics and and uh and now of course i'm geeking out on building arrows and everything else so. yeah they cross over so much when you when you get into the details uh not that the details are the same but i i found that there's almost like this you know, there's the surface level of you can be confident or competent with a bow or with a rifle with a base level of knowledge. And a lot of guys stay there and hover there and that's just fine. But when you want to, like when you want to open Pandora's box and like really get in ballistics or really get into bow tuning or arrow setups or whatever, like there's this whole next layer where you can just get really deep in the weeds with either one if you want to. And it's it can be fun to do that. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Plus, you know, even though I can only get 23 yards in the backyard, just going out every day and, and shooting those 10 arrows or, or whatever, it's, it's just, um, you know, mentally it's nice. You know, it's, it's kind of nice to have something that is challenging, you know, but at the same time, almost, uh, you know, putic, <laughs> you know, if you're having, mm-hmm. a, having a bad day and, and you're stacking arrows, then it just kind of puts a smile back on your face. Yeah. So your time in the military and, you know, we can continue to pull lessons from that and talk about it, but just to kind of talk about transitions and getting more into hunting, uh, you essentially obviously did a ton of time in service, uh, and hard service, many, many deployments, but you basically said that the life of a green beret was catching up with your body and basically came to the point where you had to medically retire. Correct. Yes. Um, you know, just any, we're always in body armor. We're, you know, we've got a lot of weight on our, 
on our bodies. Um, you know, obviously being, um, especially during my assaulter days, uh, being through so close to so many uh, explosive charges, you know, besides the, the stuff the bad guys were throwing at us and everything else. Um, yeah, it just wears you out. You know, uh, I had a couple of hard landings and, in, in helicopters, you know, that kind of jacked up my back and my neck. So, um, yeah, a lot of surgeries, <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of concussions, and then just, it just kind of caught up with me. So I had gone over, I actually had started out, I was, a uh, was doing a CQB. I was a CQB instructor and then, um, the opportunity over in the sniper committee opened up. So I switched over, which was good because I, I kind of needed to get out of body armor for a while. And like we said, staying away from, from the, uh, explosive charges, but, um, yeah, started catching up with me. Um, partially my fault. I mean, uh, we were super busy and my diet was really went downhill. (laughs) Uh, and, um, I wasn't, wasn't doing as much exercise as I should have just because, you know, I kind of got lazy. I mean, it's all on me. Um, you know, instead of, after work hitting the gym or, or lacing up the running shoes, it was kind of, man, I just want to go home and, and be a vegetable in front of the TV. And, and that didn't help my matters much, but kind of the final straw, what happened was, um, so my, there's uh it's called the sniper competition and it's probably the best sniper competition in the world. I mean, we, we get guys long, high end law enforcement, military, both, you know, foreign and here in the States. And, uh, one thing that my unit did is we would run our own sniper competition. And then the winners of that would get our slots to the USAC competition. And, uh, we were, uh, running a stage. It was a nighttime stage and we were out on a, um, a, uh, a Mount site, which is a, you know, it's a fake city. And they're, they're usually made out of cinder block. And I was in a small room and a team came in, they come in my small room. It's a nighttime and they're supposed to engage certain target, you know, find the targets, engage the targets, get their hits and then move out. Cause it's, it's based on time and, and hits for your score. Um, small room. And these, these guys are running unsuppressed and they just started pounding away. And I could tell right away that uh, it wasn't going to, be a good night for me. Luckily they were the last team to go through, but once they left the room, um, I'd had enough concussions. I knew that I had gotten another one and that was, you know, just from two guys with, you know, 308 sniper rifle shooting in a, an enclosed room is what, what got me going. So, Hmm. uh, you know, next, next morning, um, went and saw the unit surgeon who was a friend of mine, that actually let me uh, shoot and, and hunt on his property. He had, he had a pretty good chunk of land, but he's an interesting guy too. <laughs> One of those guys that they could write a book about, but um, you know, he's like, listen, you know, I'm telling you as your surgeon, as your friend that you need to enough's enough, you know? And, and he was right. You know, I wasn't too ha- happy about it at the time. I, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to fight you on this. And he goes, I wouldn't expect you to do anything else otherwise. So, but, um, 
yeah. And so we, so I went through that and, and it was really hard. You know, it was a hard time in my life because the, when they, when they put you through a, a medical retirement board, um, it takes a while, you know, you go through all your appointments. Uh, they'll tell you it's anywhere from six months to a year before you, you get your, their decision from the board and everything. So it, it took me a, uh, almost a year, I think 11 months before I found out that, yeah, they were going to retire me. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, you know, I'm going to these medical appointments. Um, I'm taking painkillers. You know, it's just kind of a, just kind of a low point in my life, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's like how we identify as hunters. You know, like, uh, somebody's like, hey, what do you do? You know, it's all oh, I hunt. You know, you don't talk about, well, I own a pack company. It's like, oh, I'm a bow hunter. You know, it's same thing with a Green Beret, whether you're a Green Beret, a Ranger, a SEAL, whatever. It's it's how you uh, identify. And all of a sudden, I'm losing that and uh, trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do next? You know, and um, so I don't want to bring this down. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like, like we were talking about, it's like I've lost my challenge. Yeah. You know, and, and my, my tour as an instructor was coming up and I was getting ready to go back over and I was, you know, instead of going to the salt side, I was going to be going to the sniper side. And I'd, you know, prior to me going over, I'd been on the sniper side for quite a while, you know, prior to me going over and being an instructor. So, um, you know, like we talked about, that's when Syria and Iraq had really, that's when ISIS was on their big role. And, uh, so, you know, I wanted to do, I wanted to do a couple more years. I wanted to get at least one more combat rotation in, um, because all my friends are talking about, Hey bro, you need to get over here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I do. Um, so it was kind of a gut punch. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, it's, it all worked out. Yeah. Even just physically, one thing you mentioned was, uh, and I think this was probably either in the transition of your retirement or maybe shortly thereafter, but you know, you're talking about getting your, um, getting your health back and kind of working through recovery. And you said how that just started out slow, essentially just walking and doing body weight exercises. Uh, and you said even that was kind of a low point just cause it was so frustrating and mentally taxing to know, you know, I've always been active and in great shape and here I am essentially just walking and doing really simple stuff. But the reason I bring that up is for guys that are listening, it's, you know, the important thing there that you did, Stephen, is realize what you're currently capable of. Like, not what you used to do, not what, you know, guys listen to this, like, oh, in high school, I used to whatever that like, that's great. But that doesn't matter. What matters is like accepting where you are now, because you can't really improve if you don't accept the reality of where you are. Um, and so I just want to hear a bit more about kind of that for you. Yeah. So I guess, like I said, I wasn't working out the way I should have. I wasn't eating, uh, you know, it's, it's that whole triad, you know, of, of doing your physical fitness, your, your mental, your mental state and in your diet. You know, I mean, we, we both have talked to Kyle, um, you know, and gotten his input. Um, but we were, Believe it or not, there are not many sniper ranges on Fort Bragg. 
Um, so what we were doing is we were going out to these National Guard bases, not that far from, from Fort Bragg. But it was, it was far enough away where we had to stay overnight, and we were catering in the meals. And it was, it was good Southern food, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so we're, we, were, we were always shorthanded, so constantly busy. You'd grab something, you'd throw it in your mouth, you'd go out, and, you'd just, and it just built up. And I, I turned into, uh, what do they call it, the... Uh, uh, this, I turned into a SoFi, so skinny on the outside, fat on the inside type of guy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my 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 optimal fighting weight is about one ninety five, and uh, I you know I've been bigger, especially when I was on the on the breaching cell. I mean, all we did was you know lift weights, oh, and uh, but um, so that had a that had a dramatic effect on my health. Um, I had high, high blood pressure between that and, uh, and just the, the stress of the job. Um, and just all kinds of other stuff going on. And it was all because, you know, they talk about how the fat gets on your organs and then things just go, go to crap. I mean, I ballooned up to 215 and it wasn't a good 215, you know, <laughs> Um, so I was like, okay, this has got to change. This has got to change. And, uh, my wife who she's also a runner, you know, her thing is, is half marathons. And, um, she, she started doing keto and, um, so she kind of got me on board with that. And that's when I really cleaned up my eating and, you know, cut out the sugars, cut out sodas. I mean, I was, I was gulping down probably four to six Cokes a day. Um, you know, got that out of my life and, and I really melted all that down and got back down into my fighting weight. Um, so then it was just kind of, okay, how do I, how do I heal these joints, you know, how do, how do I deal with my back? How do I deal with my hips, uh, knees, shoulders, you know? Um, so that's, that kind of brought me back into that. Um, and you know, kind of, there's a saying in SF or in, in special operations, like let pain be your guide. <laughs> and that's kind of what I did. You know, I, you still have to push yourself, you know, a little pain is good, but don't, don't go out and do something idiotic, you know, yeah. but yeah, just like you, I mean, and, and luckily too, I had access to, um, a lot of good resources at my unit. So in, uh, in special operations, you know, whether you're on the SEAL teams, Ranger regiment, um, special forces, we have, uh, we have a facility called the Thor three. And in that it's, it's mostly staffed by civilians. Um, but we have physical therapists, we have strength coaches, we have a dietitian. Um, so you just go into them, you know, and say, Hey, this is my goal. And they'll be, they'll build you a program. Um, 
you know, everything from what you should be doing physically to what you should be eating, um, the whole nine yards. And these, these people are incredible. Um, you know, talking with them when they go to seminars and stuff like that, their colleagues that they speak to are, are hanging out. Basically they're held in the same esteem as their counterparts on professional sports teams. Mm. Um, it's, I mean, our, our head strength coach, coach actually left an NHL team to take that job. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, these guys are, are cream of the crop, you know, and, and whether it, cause what, what happened was special operations looked in the, in the early two thousands, they were like, we're breaking guys. We're breaking guys faster than we can build them. So they're like, what can we do? So they, they put these facilities into, into these units and one was to help rehab guys that were hurt uh, and then training smart, you know, getting guys to do more functional fitness um, so that, you know, every, you know, building their core so that they can handle those heavy weights, combat loads and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so I use them quite a bit and, and, you know, I was friends with a lot of them. We had, we had done some stuff uh, with them, like our dietitian. Um, when we were running a course, she would come over and she would monitor the guys, like, uh, especially their hydration rate. And she found, um, like one of the classes we ran, we had a young guy and this, this kid was just a stud and he was top of the class and everything. And we were out doing a stock, you know, where guys come in, they have to get within a certain distance and they fire a blank. And then us as instructors try to find them. Well, we finally busted this kid um after he had been smoking through and it turns out he was super dehydrated and so not only were we monitoring their hydration but then we would ask some questions and stuff like that and he was like yeah i was getting frustrated i wasn't thinking straight the whole nine yard and it just came down that um you know he had, he had been busy that morning so he hadn't been able to hydrate properly and so it affected his thinking and and our our dietitian actually wrote up a uh, like a research paper ended up going all the way down to Tampa, down to special operations command. And uh, they started implementing some of that stuff. Um, Cause if it happens there in training, obviously it's going to happen in, in combat also. Yeah. What are some of the things you, you learned during that, like specific things that you still use or apply today, whether that's for day-to-day -day life or hunting, but whether that's things like nutrition, hydration, whether it's, you know, you found specific movements and exercises that work well for you, just any of the specifics that you just continue with. Yeah. I mean, I'm finally training smart again. <laughs> um, and I'm sure some people are like, wait, yeah, yeah. what? <laughs> Uh, so I hate to like and go backwards more, but so when I was in the infantry, we would every day, our, our physical fitness regimen was the same. We'd show up, we'd go for like a three to five mile run. We'd come back, we'd get in a circle and we would do what they called push up and sit up improvement. And maybe we'd have a deck of cards and you'd flip the card and you'd have to do that many push-ups or you'd have to do that many sit-ups. And what that, and then what that did was the only thing it was doing is it was preparing us for the army physical fitness test, you know, which was at that time, a time two mile run, uh, how many push-ups you could do in two minutes and how many sit-ups you could do in two minutes. 
but that wasn't, you know, not the right way to go with it. <laughs> um, then when I got to special forces and especially being on a breacher team, we were like, okay, we're going to do short runs, you know, short, quick runs. And then we're going to go to the gym. Um, cause we need to be big. We need to be strong. And, you know, when I first got on my breaching cell, this is before I had the cell, um, you know, I, I ended up, I was six foot, 200 pounds and I was the smallest guy in the cell. Hmm. So, I mean, we looked, we looked like, you know, a bunch of, you know, linebackers and, and safeties walking into a room, but we weren't doing that smart either. And we were doing the, uh, you know, I'm a little bit older than you guys, but we were doing the, oh, okay, today it's back and buys tomorrow, yeah. chest and tries, we're going to do legs and we were strong, but we weren't as strong as I think we could have been because we weren't doing the functional fitness. Sorry, this is, I'm taking it on this big spiral. <laughs> no, it makes <laughs> sense. Right. Yeah. So once they got the Thor going, and actually, when we first got Thor, because, you know, all the type A personalities, I don't need that because I've, I've been doing the same thing and it's worked. Um, Man, when we when those guys came in, when those we got those strength coaches, they just turned everything around. Um, you know, it was all the functional fitness, strong core. You know, and and again, like if you're listening to this, in the last time you you worked out, you're wearing tube socks and a terry, terry cloth bandana, man. You need to get in and look at resources because things have changed. Um, just you know, building cores and doing crunches, you know, crunches don't do anything for you unless you're, you know, a model or something like that. But just getting, getting that big, strong core, um, plus everything else that goes with it. And it was a game changer. I mean, the, the best shape I was ever in in my life, um, you know, I was in my early forties and it was all about doing that functional fitness. Um, uh, you know, full, full uh disclosure i was doing yoga and i was doing yoga probably two two times a week maybe three and increasing my flexibility just made me that much stronger and uh, a little bit more resistant to um to uh injury so so i guess after going down that rabbit hole for however long it was i apologize mike or mark uh the big thing was um, what I took from that is uh, I work on my cardio. Um, I try to do low impact. Um, I ride my mountain bike quite a bit. Uh, no, Steve, I'm not going to ride mountain bike with you because you'll probably crush my soul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I would. I would just just give you a good laugh. But um, and just again, staying with that core. Um, I've I do a lot of. Uh, when I do with my strength workouts, I use a lot of dumbbells. You don't need much. You know, I think guys think that, well, I need a gym membership in order to do backcountry hunting and, and things like that. But, um, no, man, just get your, get yourself some dumbbells if you can still find them and, and just train smart, you know? And, and I think people too worry about the time commitment, but you know, something think about, okay, if you come home, if you have a stressful job and you come home, you're like, oh, I just don't want to work out. Uh, I just want to sit here and watch TV. 
well, hey, during the commercial breaks, stand up and do air squats or do lunges, you know, things like that. And I mean, that's, you'll see huge improvements real quick, in my opinion. Yeah. No, you will, especially if all you've been doing is sitting on the couch. <laughs> yeah. 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 That'll, that's, that's not good. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, training, physical activity, kind of even the mental component, uh, tell us about the challenge that you did here that you just recently wrapped up for the year of 2020. Cause, uh, I don't know that I even knew that you were doing this until it was over. And then I was super pumped to hear about it, man. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, um, yeah, I, I kind of keep you stayed, you stayed under the radar. Yeah. I gave you hints though. Yeah, you did. I mean, I see you out there getting after it, but I didn't realize you were doing this challenge, man. Yeah. So it, there's a company called run the edge and it's run by, um, some distance runners. Uh, and with run the edge every year, they do this thing called run the year. I think this is their eighth year. And basically you sign up for it. They send you a medal. You can get t-shirts. You can do stuff like that. And what's nice about it is they have a, once you get all that, you can log in or they have a website and you can log your miles as you go. And when you say run the the year, yeah, the big goal is like for 2020, you wanted to do 2020 miles. Yeah. So that was the goal. So, um, I had actually done it a couple of times with my wife, but didn't take it super serious. You know, this was when I was still in and stuff and like you guys, um, I'm always reevaluating. It's like, okay, what did I do? Right. What did I do wrong? Whether, whether it's a hunt or your, your physical uh, workout, stuff like that. And after the 2019 season, I felt like I was kind of running out of gas. Um, I'd done a backcountry rifle hunt in Idaho with a couple friends. And by the time we were done, I was like, man, I, I need to, I need to figure something out. Um, and we were actually down in Arizona visiting my, my wife's parents and they do it too. My, my, my in-laws are just awesome. And they, every day they walk anywhere from three to six miles, you know, keeping up their, their physical, uh, conditioning. They were doing it. My wife had done it. And my wife was like, why don't you do it too? And I had been, I'd been keeping track of my miles, but I was just, you know, old school doing it on like an Excel spreadsheet. So I was like, yeah, why not? I think it was like $30. So I signed up and, uh, like we talked about, nothing kills me more than, than going out and trying to run. Uh, I'm okay for a few trail miles, but, um, if I were to go run on the street, it'd, it just crushed me, uh, just cause my joints can't take it anymore. So it was like, all right, I live here in the land of public lands. And so I was grabbing my, my, uh, my exo packs and I was just hitting the trails and building those miles up. And, uh, you know, with the goal of being having more endurance longer into the season, and, uh, so yeah, trying to get that 2020, um, that's a lot, man. I mean, that's like basically <laughs> comes out to five and a half miles every single day for the year. Yes, it does. 
it does. Wow. And, you know, there were days where, you know, I'd try to put in 10 or 12. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, maybe 13. I was going to ask, could you do, like, if you say on average, you you went out and actually did what, four or five, you know, hikes or runs or what have you a week, probably. Is that how you kind of actually no um i have i've so i have gone out every day since i think it was january like around jan around this time last year i've gone out every day yeah every day holy crap well that that uh my stud wife i think today is going to be like 580 day 88 days straight that she's ran wow so yeah i'm, I'm not the king of my castle that's <laughs> <laughs> green beret's up. getting his butt kicked <laughs> by yeah, his wife beret. yeah <laughs> well yeah they always say that the only thing tougher than a green beret is his spouse so yeah can imagine <laughs> any lessons learned during you know during this last year on um yeah, I mean, like, just any lessons. I'm, I'm like, I don't know why I'm thinking of like shoes. You know, like, did, do you find certain shoes work better You're just for your obsessed body? With or... things that go on your feet. Yeah, I know. Each, but Steve know. just wants yeah. to talk I mean, about just... boots. Let's stop the podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about boots. So, um, I'm I'm a big ultra guy. Oh yeah. Um, I've I've used ultra for quite a while. Um, and once again, uh, TJ's the one. My wife. That's the one that got me going with ultras. And yeah, so I went through five pair of ultras, five pairs in 2000 miles. Um, okay. Yeah. And I think one, I kind of wore some a little bit longer than I should have. And two, I think that, I think if I was, if you were to do this on the street, you'd probably, you need to go through, you need to get new shoes sooner than what I did. You know? Yeah. Being that I was, I was on, on dirt most of the time, you know, I got a little bit more. Or, or did, tread life on did a podcast with uh oh uh andrew skirka right and he was like every hundred mm-hmm. miles he was replacing shoes um mm-hmm. yeah 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 i i probably should have done every like two 250 yeah but some some i stretched a little bit yeah so anything I, else on like you know just your body taking care of your body where you you know icing frequently or i mean or just was it kind of seven or five miles every day that was kind of low impact and, you know, didn't really hurt you too bad. No. Yeah. Doing the short days, you know, the five and a half, the short days were, you know, no big deal. I mean, yeah, especially your body gets, gets used to it. Um, I, one of the big take, one of the big takeaways I had on that was uh, not fueling properly. Um, you know, Mark and I was talking about I th- the longest, I did, I think was 31.6, somewhere around in there. And uh, I could have done a better job fueling. Um, you know, it was, if, if T hadn't come out, so she, I kind of set it up with her. There's, a, there's an area um, just east of my hometown and whole all kinds of of trails you'd love it steve because a lot most of the trails are for mountain bikes yeah um, what is that uh i've been out there biking before Can yeah it's uh school? it's called um schoolyard okay yeah so and which they've expanded big time you can i don't, I don't 
we can talk about it later, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I spent a lot of time out there. I use trekking poles a lot. Um, and it's right. I, you know, they, you hear people talk, Oh, it takes 20% off the, off your joints. And I believe it. Uh, cause there's days where I used trekking poles and days where I didn't, and I can tell the difference big time, big time. So, uh, definitely trekking poles, fueling smart. Um, when I was doing that 31 miler, Terry brought out, um, some food for me, which if she hadn't had done that, I don't know if I would have gotten that far. Um, because I wanted, I got to a point where I just wanted it to be over with, <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and the, that's the other big takeaway for me besides proper fueling is just getting that mental aspect. Because when you, when you're doing the same trails day in and day out, it just becomes mind numbing. And you, you know, there's, there's a point where you get to, ah, I just got to get this done, you know, instead of going out there and, and you guys, I mean, I hear you guys talk about it all the time with, with your workout regimen. You know, Mark, you were talking one time about, okay, I'm going to do, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I'm going to do half of that because I'm just not in it. And then you get in it and you do that completely. Then you can't quit. Out. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, I had, I had to deal with a lot of that. You know, at the beginning, it wasn't a big deal, but, you know, midsummer. I was almost like, you know, this is, that's, yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's things you can do. And, and for me too, it's like, I was just too stubborn to quit. You know, it's like, Hey, you told yourself you're going to do this. You're going to do it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and I did things too. Uh, you know, Mark and I were talking about it is I think so much of that, that mental hardness that you need. You know, we, we alluded to it a little bit when I was younger, you know, you know, hunting, hunting in the wintertime, that, that mental, you know, blocking out the pain and, uh, that pain dividends when I got older. And, and so I would do things, um, that's like, okay, my, my goal here is to be the best backcountry hunter I can be. How can I simulate that? I'm doing the physical part. Hot, but I gotta, you gotta keep that mental part. So I would look at the, uh, the weather forecast and be like, Oh, okay. It's going to be really crappy on, on Wednesday. We're going to have, you know, it's going to be seven degrees and snowing. So I'd set the alarm for four o'clock and I'd climb out of that nice warm bed and lace up my boots and, and hit the trails. And you know, that, Cause you guys both know, I mean, there's days you just don't want to crawl out of, out of that quilt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like every morning for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To be honest with you, Steve, I think that's the most impressive part is yes, the mileage and yes, the physicality and all that, but it's the, fa- especially the way you did it with doing all the days back to back and same for your wife for an even longer stretch. It's the fact that you were no doubt going to face out of hundreds of days, days where the conditions are terrible, days where you're just tired, you know, grumpy, sick, or at least just not feeling good, you know, that's like, that's what's impressive. It's that, that consistency of no matter what the conditions are, no matter, you know, what I'm feeling like today, I'm, I'm lacing up and getting after it. 
Well, you guys know the deal. I mean, it's like, uh, hey, weather's going to be bad. I'm going to grab my bow and I'm going to get out there because you know that you're probably going to have the mountain to yourself. And, uh, you know, it happened this year. Um, we had that early, early snowstorm in September. And uh, as I'm driving out, driving out to the snowies, it was just a steady stream of, of rigs headed the other way. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, this is going to be me and the elk today. So, yeah, that's cool. How many of these miles were you, uh, was it mostly hiking? Did you still mix in? You mentioned you can't run the road, but you can do some trail running. So what was like the overall breakdown of hiking versus maybe trail running? And then I guess for the hiking portion, I'd love to hear about how did you use or even vary pack weight through that? Okay. Um, so, uh, I think it was like, it was, I think 1,631 miles of, cause that's the nice thing about that tracker, um, is you can put in, you can track them as run miles, walk miles or other. Mm-hmm. And so every time I had my pack on, I tracked it as other. And so, uh, I did do some trail runs. I would do those with TJ. She'd come out and uh, I, I think the longest trail run we did together is maybe three or four miles. I mean, it was fun. I mean, breaking it up, being out there with her. And then there were times where I was kind of hiking or walking where I didn't have my pack. So that that's what made it up for for the rest of those miles. Um, you can, so the, the rules that they set, you can bike, uh, it's for every 20 minutes you bike, you can count a count a mile on the, uh, run the year. Mm. So, um, and I, I really, I, you know, I think mountain biking is, is huge. And we, we can talk about that too, cause it's not the first time I've used mountain bikes to get in shape for something. Um, but then, yeah, the rest was uh, was either my thirty five hundred or or uh, my forty five hundred. I always had it set up. Um, usually had it set up for what I would have for a day hunt, mm-hmm. um, minus all the food. You know, I, I would usually carry obviously food to fuel, and then I would usually carry a, a one day uh, food bag like I would. Um, if I was hunting, um, and I had like my sleeping bag in there and stuff like that. Cause there's a lot of, I have a, I have a really light, um, like 30 degree bag that I always carry with me just in case, you know, there's, if you tip something over at five o'clock in the afternoon and you're five miles from the truck, you know, sometimes it's better just break that animal down, get a couple hours of sleep and then start, start the pack out. So mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes once a week, sometimes once every two weeks, uh, I'd grab a bag of dog food and throw it on the meat tray and usually do like somewhere between five and a half and, and seven. And just to simulate the pack out, you know, getting back to that train, like you fight Mm -hmm. type of deal. So, and that was, 
I had a, a for that, I had a course where it was um, uphill and then at turnaround point, it was downhill um, just to kind of get kind of, because it seems like we always get the animal at the top of the top of the mountain, <laughs> not at the bottom. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, again, working on that mental toughness. Nice. You mentioned the importance of fueling any go-to like during the hike nutrition things that you like, just like specific foods or maybe even foods you liked at the beginning of this that you now can't stomach at the end of it. Like anything like that. You guys know the deal. I mean, it's like, there are foods I will not eat during the year because it's like your back, back country go-tos. Pop-tarts, right? And I mean, it's like, <laughs> Um, you know, I used to kind of be a big pop tart guy, but I just mean the um, only time I, I mean, eat them in a year is on a hunt. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, they're yeah, like special food. Now, yeah, yeah. So there's a bar. Um, I don't. They're out of uh, out of Victor, Idaho. Um, oh, Kate's bars. Oh, Kate's bars. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I love those things. God, I love those things. And. Um, but one thing that I learned, you know, working with Kyle from Valley, uh, Valley to Peak is he's like, hey, man, there's I know you like the taste, but there isn't quite enough calories or aren't quite enough uh, carbs in there for you. So instead of eating one bar, I'd eat a bar and a half or two bars just to try to bring that up. Um, so that was that was kind of one of my go to's. Uh, the other thing that I went back to and I hated to do, I hate, I hate hydration packs. Um, I don't know if that's cause I used them so long in the military, but uh, you know, that was something I identified was okay. I, I need to use one because I'll drink more if I use it, you know, I'll get more water in me versus a Nalgene bottle or something. Yeah. So I always had two Nalgene bottles in, in the little, uh, side to stuff pockets. Uh, one, I usually had some type of hydration, uh, um, supplement. And then on the other one, it was just plain water. So a lot of times I carry my jet boil and especially doing the long one, I carry my jet boil and, and probably have like a peak refuel or a mountain house or something like that. And halfway through stop, actually fuel up like that. So I really identified that I was not fueling enough because uh, I think you, you guys try to pack what 3000 calories for a day. Yeah. Yeah. 30, yeah. 33 to 35. Yeah. 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 So getting back to, to, um, you know, resources um, I use, I use the, the Garmin connect and you know, I don't care what people wear. That's just mine. But what I found out was there were days where I was burning 4,000, 4,200 calories. So even carrying that 3,000, eating it, which I, again, you guys know how there's times you just don't want to eat, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even though you need it. Um, it was like, okay, I need to, I need to bump my calorie intake because a thousand calorie deficit in the back country, you're, you're not being yourself. And kind of getting back to that, that stud student I had, um, he failed because of 
not feeling right. And kind of the same thing. If you're, if you're trying to get on, on that mule deer, or you're trying to get that bull in, you can't make those mental mistakes because, you know, they're smarter than we are. So, <laughs> you know, um, so you need that, those calories to keep, keep yourself nice and sharp. Yeah. Man, we could talk all day, Stephen, and uh, might have to do a part <laughs> two. But uh, to wrap things up, man, you mentioned one of your most memorable hunts was your 2018 elk. So I don't want to, you know, keep you on here for another hour. But like, what's the quick story on why was that one of your most memorable hunts? So that was that was my first time being able to hunt elk hunt after retirement, and unfortunately, because of the job I had at that time, I wasn't able to bow hunt because uh, I was on the East coast for most of September. Um, so rifle hunting, um, I was having some frustrations with the job I had at that time and having frustrations hunting, you know, it was one of those seasons where if I was hunting deer, I saw elk. And if I was hunting elk, I was seeing deer. And, um, I, it was like, I was trying out a new spot. I had been out there once before and I was, it was a Friday and I was like, I'm going to go, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm just going to jump in the truck. I'm going to go out and I'm going to scout for, for the weekend and, uh, started walking in and saw tracks and, uh, the old saying of, uh, don't leave elk to find elk just echoed in my head. And, uh, so, and, you know, like I said, it was, I was in a really good place at the time. And, uh, even before I left the truck, um, you know, we talked a little bit, Mark, about how watching land of the free one, uh, really kind of set me up for my next challenge, my next life challenge, you know, watching, watching Cody and Trent and the boys get after it. Um, so you know, again, not in a real good headspace, and I'm closing the truck. I'm frustrated because I haven't been getting on animals like I'd like. And I was kind of like, you know, what I'm forgetting to do is I'm I'm forgetting. You know, I love it when when the bro guys do their prayer huddle. You know, to me that's always it's like, yeah, we have a lot to be thankful for being out here. I was like, I realized I hadn't been really giving thanks like I should be, so I did. Thanks, Trent and Cody. <laughs> <laughs> and went in, found the tracks, checked the wind, set myself up. And uh, about an hour and a half later, here comes a, uh, a big six. And he's got a little raghorn in trail. And I, they're coming right at me. I, I didn't think I was even going to get a shot. And this is rifle, obviously. And, and right before they get to me, they kind of angle away. And, and so I had a nice, he was moving, but not, you know, I was comfortable with the shot and broke the shot. And, uh, you know, he went probably another 30 yards from me and you could tell he was done, but he, you know, he had his back to me. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't need the second shot, but, and he went down and, 
you know, just, I came up to him and it was just uh, kind of one of those life changers. And, and I think the most important thing about that, and I think a lot of people think it's strange, but getting that bull took me back to what I was like prior to 9-11. You know, all that, all those combat deployments, all those, all those years, just kind of all that stress of that just kind of melted away. And I was kind of that, that guy was prior, you know? And, um, again, I gave thanks. Uh, you know, it was just very emotional for me, you know, that, you know, taking an animal always is, but for something like that to happen and take me back to a kind of a le less stressful time in my life. And it stayed with me, you know, I was like, I am not going to lose this. Um, you know, and just took that big moment. I still get a little bit, you know, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then, uh, I, I had cell coverage where I was at and, and I, I texted TJ and of course her being her, she's like, uh, it didn't happen unless you send me a picture. So, <laughs> 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 so I sent her a picture and, uh, she actually, um, her and my youngest son came out and, and helped me break him down and pack him to the truck and, and everything. So, yeah. Well, that's good, man. We'll have to uh, we'll have to continue this conversation another day. But man, thanks for joining us today and sharing this. And you know, no. redundant no, as mean, it might sound, like thank you for your service and and your sacrifice, man. You're very welcome. Yeah, I'm just I'm happy we could do it because you know, I mean, you guys are you guys are great. I mean, I a couple years ago when we got to sit and talk at Hunt Expo for a while, I really enjoyed it. And and you two have you guys have really saved me. Uh, a lot of money yeah <laughs> so much cost of you what, some too though <laughs> yeah but you know it's uh buy once cry once um yeah i mean everything that you guys have suggested that i purchased it's it's awesome um you know dealing with xo as a as a customer dealing with sns archery i mean you guys are just an awesome team appreciate and, that uh, thank you you know being able to to uh kind of that personal relationship with you guys too is means a lot to me likewise man we appreciate it and uh yeah man i think we're gonna have to share some more stories in the future that'd be i'd, I'd enjoy that i enjoy that a lot well guys i hope you enjoyed that episode something we haven't mentioned in quite some time is that we do have some hunt backcountry podcast logo gear we got shirts and decals you can go to exomountaingear.com and then go under shop and logo gear, and you'll see all that. So if you guys want to support the show, it'll be a great way to do it. As always, we appreciate your feedback. If you want to get in contact with us, just email podcast at exomountaingear.com, and we'll talk to you soon.